electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people, my friends, I'm just trying to save you a little money. My job is not just entertain, but explain how days like today can come and just crush your portfolio. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Uh, if a company after a company were going bankrupt with massive layoffs, if banks were failing all over the place, if unemployment were rising from 5 to 6%, uh, if you couldn't get a job, yeah, then the Fed should be cutting rates. Right now, we got plentiful business formation. The banks are doing fine. Unemployment rates still under four. That's why the Fed decision to stand pat today is so joyously, I think, predictable. Nobody should have been surprised by this, yet the Dow lost 317 points, S&P plunged 1.6%, and the Nasdaq plummeted 2.23%. People fool themselves into a level of unjustified euphoria about everything, including the Fed. And it is time to take a breath and accept that in the year 2024, stocks can indeed go down. Now, I like to goof around on a site called DraftKings, the betting, it's betting thing. And you can do so in two ways. You can gamble on the games. Or you can do what's known as daily fantasy, where you put in a lineup using a mythical $50,000. That second option, daily fantasy, is exactly like picking a stock portfolio. I mean, exactly. You have to put players in or you just can't win. You just uh, just like with stocks, okay? You have to figure out which stocks are the best and which are what you're willing to pay for or overpay for a la the super six-pack. You might want to take a flyer and Nucor or GM probably doesn't cost you much money. But the point is you can't make any money unless you have a portfolio. On days like today... You have a lot of straight-out gamblers who bet only on the direction of the market. They do not interest me. They don't invest in companies. As a matter of fact, I find their thinking pedestrian. They're possessed by what the Fed has to say within the confines of a very strong economy that doesn't have a lot of stress and could at any minute get overheated again. We're on a soft landing path here, people, one where you barely even know the plane's hitting the ground. That's exactly what you want. There's really only one thing that could spoil it if the Fed cuts rates too quickly. And then we get some hot inflation numbers that cause Jay Powell to lose his credibility. 
Good thing he took the notion of a March rate cut off the table. That was always a sucker's bet. As I told you repeatedly, we need six straight months of good numbers that we've had to make me comfortable that inflation's truly calmed down, and we don't have that many numbers yet. Now, here's what matters for you. You may not know it, but you're most likely not doing that big bet on the game. You're much more like daily fantasy role players than in the straightforward bets on a given given contest. Yet most of the people who come on our air, they live in a different universe from you. They're making these monstrous bets, not only on whether the Fed will cut or when, but they even try to guess what month it is. Notice I use the word guess. Their game is not your game. They actually are playing a game. You're investing. Money managers make these bets because if they don't drive short-term outperformance, their investors pull their money out. You do not have that problem, thank heavens. Frankly, I think today's Fed action in the selling aircraft makes it so that we can go back and start deciding what stocks we should pick up after the rubble. Daily reality investing, if you will. And what do we see? I see two markets that came into the earnings season, way, one way, way too hot, and the other one has not in. With this background of the Fed doing nothing, you've got to err on the side of picking players that haven't run too much. Because anything that's run too much can slip down, even on good numbers. Case in point, Alphabet. Really important, a terrific quarter. We, we did some, by the way, if you want to check these companies, we did some great analysis in the investing club. And one thing I can tell you is this was a fantastic quarter. It's a return to growth for the all-important Google Cloud business, which is what we were worried about. I say... Doesn't matter, though. Day after day for weeks now, analysts have been whispering tremendous things about the quarter to come. I have no idea how they got those projections, how they raised expectations so much. Why did they do it? Stupidity, showmanship? I do not know. Either way, we now need to get rid of all the daily fantasy, what I call streamers in Alphabet, and look for lower levels to do some buying. Microsoft gave you fantastic cloud numbers. Don't listen to what people said. They just looked at the stock down. They said, oh, it must be bad. Great artificial intelligence figures, good gaming results, incredible color and co-pilot, and above all, a juggernaut of combined power that makes me think, wow, so happy we own such a big position for the Chapel Trust. But when you have a stock like Microsoft that's played by everyone in daily fantasy, nobody's going to make any money. Stock ran so much that, you, you, look, you just weren't getting good odds. Uh, you got to now look for a better entry point. Keep your powder dry there. Then there's AMD. We had CEO Lisa Sue on this morning and Squawk on the Street, and she showed off the first graphics cards that truly are competitive with NVIDIA's best stuff. Although, given that NVIDIA makes more than just the chips, they make the software inside, you can argue that NVIDIA's chips and NVIDIA's stock are a better buy. Still, AMD says artificial intelligence cards will be about $1.5 billion billion dollar higher in sales than we thought. More important, Sue believes the total addressable market for these kinds of products could be worth roughly $400 billion by 2027. Keep that number in mind because that prediction was viewed as outrageous. An incredulous group of analysts seems stunned that she used this $400 billion number. I think some of them considered it Uber, so this is considered to be inaccurate. Me? I met Lisa Sue when she just took over AMD and the stock was trading at five bucks. She correctly told me to get off the Intel bus and onto the AMD train. Intel was about 35, seven times higher, a greyhound. I watched the stock at AMD levitate and at $8 changed my way, swore off Intelaholicism and got on board the little engine that could. I've been a believer ever since and I'd be a buyer right into the cell of right now, the 160s. By contrast, what actually worked, at least for most of the day, let's take a stock like Starbucks. This stock started breaking down in the middle of November, right when the, uh, Israel's war against Hamas became full-blown. And Starbucks got hit by pro-Palestinian protesters, even though there's no connection here. Called collateral damage. Purchase had their intended consequences. Good number of occasional customers stayed away, even as Starbucks is a publicly traded, non-Jewish-owned or run company with no ties to Israel. Misguided. 
At the same time, China teetering for months on end really went off the rails. I mean, like, yeah. The same store sales coming in at 10%, we were hoping for 17. That's bad news. Good news. Stock came into the print way down from its highs with people like me telling investing club members that it would miss because of both the protests in China. When Starbucks missed because of the protests in China, the stock had nowhere to go but up. Uh, that's where it stayed until Jay Powell, playing the big game, chose not to spike the ball and declare victory in the end zone, lest it be considered a fumble and a touchback, and he hurts his hand on the J- Jenkins' hot seat. Well, that was last week's game. Starbucks may be a steal in daily fantasy and actually re- a reality. A couple of bucks stand here? I think so. Look, I'm not trying to minimize the Fed's actions, nor am I trying to be glib or make fun of what we do by using a DraftKings analogy. Remember what I do at Mad Money. I'm trying to use any metaphor I can to try to keep you informed and interested and, clue- and not clueless and baffled like so many other people who really don't give a darn how you do. Long story short, the hot stocks got too expensive to put them, uh, nothing with them in your lineup. The sleepers are winning and represent good bargains. Bottom line, the game is self-correcting. The too hot eventually cooled out. The sleepers wake up and get too expensive themselves. It's a process, people. And if you approach it clinically, you'll know the expensive stocks can come at a price that can and will diminish as the underlying companies can't keep up with Wall Street's overhyped expectations. Feel free to blame the analysts who spent the last month raising price targets on everything hot based on absolutely nothing. They, not the companies, caused the now unfolding reality, not fantasy problems in your portfolio. John in Virginia. John. Yeah. Hey, Jim. Um, First of all, many thanks to you and Jeff Marks and your wonderful staff for your invaluable insights and the confidence that you that you give retail investors like me. Thank you, John. Jeff Marks. We were working. I don't know if you guys. Yeah, we were cranking it out last night at 1130 and then getting up at three. Uh, thank well, heavens for Celsius and my internist, Dr. Pepper. How can I help? <laughs> OK, well, you may remember that um, Truist Financial Corporation is the product of a, a 2019 merger between BB&T and SunTrust. And so this this company based in Charlotte operates in the growing mid-Atlantic and southeast and offers, you know, a, whole, a full plate of um retail and commercial banking products and insurance products, among other things. And it, it, it's really strong, apparently. It's got a common equity tier, uh, tier one capital of about, I think it's over 10%. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's mm-hmm. strong, and it seems well-positioned to take advantage of its market. John, I like it. It's got a 5.6% yield. It's a conservative bank. It's well-run. It's the type of thing that, frankly, if we were playing daily fantasy, I'm going to slot that right in the flex position, and it would do very, very well. Hey, you know what? Why don't we go to Khalid in Georgia? Khalid. Yeah, hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. I'm calling about SoFi. SoFi became gap profitable. Oh, you love this. is crazy. All right, look. SoFi delivered a quarter. It was a terrific quarter. I don't know why these analysts hate it so much. They took it, and they went, you know, they just like, boom. I mean, it was unbelievable what they did to it, and I can't believe it. I think it was an insult to the people who own SoFi, also including Anthony Noto, who's the CEO. Stock should be down here. All right, look. Long story short, the hot stocks got too expensive to put nothing but them in your lineup. The sleepers are winning. The sleepers will eventually wake up and they'll get too expensive and then we'll cycle back to the hot, the once hot. Mad tonight going up. I'm seeing if that's where the stock of elevator manufacturer Otis could be headed when I talk to the company CEO. Then all aboard the rails. All aboard. I'm digging into the cohort to see if investors could expect a rail rally sometime soon. And boy, some of these look really attractive. And then Thermo Fisher, TMO, fell today on disappointing outlook. So are investors looking at the buy the dip situation or should they steer clearer? I'm leaning toward the, the uh, former. But we'll ask the questions and we'll see what we think. So stay with Kramer. 
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Cramer on X. Have a question? Tweet Cramer. Hashtag Mad Mentions. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Can we please just put the Fed to the side for a minute and focus on big earnings reports? You might have missed it all the cacophony today. Hey, how about Otis Worldwide, the number one maker of elevators and escalators with a huge associated maintenance and service business? This morning, Otis reported solid quarter inline guidance for 2024. I thought it was good initially, the stock rallied in response, but only, of course, it did finish lower like a lot of other stocks because we heard Jay Powell saying, look, you're not going to get a March rate cut. You know what? I think it's a mistake to sell stocks like this after the Fed because it misses what the company really does. Don't take it from me. Let's check in with Judy Marks. She's the chair, president, and CEO of Otis Worldwide. Get a better read in the quarter. Ms. Marks, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. Great to be with you. Well, Judy, it's kind of like clockwork. I mean, I actually was not surprised at how good your quarter was because you seem to have a handle on the globe and you have uh, two levers. You've got obviously new and you have maintenance. And as good as, as new can be, Maintenance is exceptional. And I just want you to let people tell people that maybe the maintenance business is better than the build business. Yeah, Jim, thanks. I love to start talking about our service business because at the end of the day, we're a field service company. We had a really strong fourth quarter led by service. Our organic sales top line were up 3.8 percent, but almost 7 percent in service. 
90 basis points of margin expansion, and our EPS was up 16%, just really proving that our service engine's working. You know, when we spun, we had just under 2 million service units across the globe. We ended this year at 2.3 million units with growth in all four of our regions. And it really just led to a strong year, up 5.6% top line, EPS up almost 12%, and it let us generate significant predictable cash for our shareholders, about a little over billion five in cash, and we gave back a billion point three five to them. And you just continually buy back stock, which I love. Now, another thing along these same lines, there are people who say, oh, my, she must have so much business in China. We know all the property developers are not building. But one thing that people don't realize, I think China may be equally careful about safety as we are in the United States. Yeah, they definitely are, Jim. Listen, we're in the life safety business, and there's nothing more important than the safety of the approximately 2.3 billion people a day who use our product, our own colleagues who install and service it. And that's our commitment, and that's that's what we see through. But in China specifically, if you go back a few years, service was about 15% of our business. It's now 25% of our business. We grew 20% this year, our service portfolio in China. And China, like the rest of the world, now needs to modernize or refurbish elevators with technology refresh. That grew double digits for us in China. It actually grew significantly for us, uh, 16% our modernization orders. We're going in with 15% backlog as we start 24 in modernization. And we have 2% backlog in new equipment. So we've got really good line of sight for 24, which is why I felt comfortable with our guide. No, that's why I thought the guidance was, uh, to me, that's why I mentioned clockwork, because it didn't seem to matter. It isn't like, you know, Evergrande could be closed by a Hong Kong court. And I don't know how much you do deal with some of these uh, strapped uh, developers over there. But somehow I don't see a lot of people, a lot of bad debt here in your in your books. Listen, our our team, whether it's our China team, our corporate finance team, we really take take great pride in our balance sheet. And we're very careful about net asset exposure. And there's not a lot of bad debt. We only take business that's good business. And with developers who may be challenged, we ensure that they pay us in full before we ship the equipment. And on the service side, they need service regardless. That's our annual maintenance contract. Repairs still happen. And again, the service business has just continued to prove strong. Repair was up double digit this year for us for the third straight year. So again, my thanks to the whole Otis team, our colleagues globally. We're now 71,000 colleagues strong, 42,000 work in the field, Jim. Wow. I didn't know it's that many. Now, uh, Judy, one of the things that we keep hearing yesterday, Barry Stern, a terrific guy from Philly, by the way, uh, was talking about the trillion dollars in real estate exposure, commercial real estate. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm an optimist, but I don't see that much uh, that I, that is defaulting. But more important, uh, I see buildings going up now, buildings that were started right at the time when COVID was done. I mean, if you if you were to come to, to New York with me, you would not believe it's building after building after building after building. I live in Brooklyn. Uh, if these all need elevators, there got to be some pockets of this country that are right now coming on very strongly for new for new equipment. Yeah, new equipment, although it, it was down this year. Right. Matter of fact, it was down in 23 in North America, the, the lowest since the GFC. So, but what our team did is they performed. Our orders were up 6% in the fourth quarter in North America. The North American market, what most people don't understand, 80% of it is two to six stories. 
It's not necessarily Manhattan. It's everywhere else in the country. Medical office buildings, hospitals, schools, small multifamily, you know, apartments, condos. It's it's where the heart of America lives. And that is our opportunity, not just on new equipment, but those units stay forever. And then at about a 20-year cycle, like our modernization refurbishment, we then modernize them and start the cycle and the, the subscription all over again. How about IRA and chips? Are you seeing business from those, those two acts? Yeah, it's hard to, to peg IRA. Uh, you know, we don't do, we, we do have an industrial business uh, because as long as you've got two plus stories, you're going to have an elevator. Right. Um, we have seen an uptick in infrastructure. There are not some strong segments. None of the segments are really that strong right now in North America, but infrastructure is doing the best of all of them. And we have seen work both airports, metro, and some rail um, that we're seeing. Uh, that's going to grow. Uh, we've got strong infrastructure offerings and really pleased our team brought home some major projects, not just in North in U.S., but even in Canada. Well, congratulations. Just one of those very few companies that just seems that are industrial that go up in good and bad times because of that great diversified business model. That's Judy Marks, the chair, president, CEO of Otis with another good quarter. Thank you, Judy, for coming on the show. Thanks, Jim. Take care. All right. May have money back. Here break. Coming up, Kramer calls all aboard to help keep your portfolio on track. Ride the rails when Mad Money returns. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Since the market bottom late October, the railroad stocks have just been roaring. Union Pacific, Norfolk Southern, CSX, of anywhere from 17 to 23 percent over the past three months. For the better part of two years, we had a freight recession as consumers switched from buying actual stuff to spending their money on services and experiences. But late last year, we started seeing signs that the freight recession was ending. And then the rails, they caught fire. So can they keep chugging along? If you, like me and Jay Powell, feel pretty sanguine about the economy, maybe it makes sense to stick with this group. We've heard the truckers report great intermodal numbers. Those are those containers that go from ships to trains to trucks. So good news for the rails. At the same time, we know that these shipping disruptions in the Red Sea have forced many companies to take their goods to the West Coast rather than going through the Suez Canal, then the Mediterranean, then the Atlantic to get to the East Coast. Boy, is that terrific for the West Coast operators. And there you're thinking about Union Pacific and Canadian Pacific Kansas City. I hate that name. Uh, Of course, the flip side of that is fewer ships go to the ports on the East Coast which does hurt CSX and definitely Norfolk Southern. Now, what did the railroads have to say when they reported over the last couple of weeks? So all the numbers are in. We've now heard from CSX, Norfolk Southern, Union Pacific, Canadian Pacific, Kansas City. So far, I'm calling them three for four. Not bad. Things got going last Wednesday when CSX turned some really solid set of numbers, better than expected. Even as their sales were down 1% year over year and their earnings were down 8%. More importantly, though, we saw some stabilization in volumes, which were up 1% year-over-year, led by automotive, volume screw 9%, as well as chemicals, up 5%, fertilizers, up 4%, and metal and equipment, as well as coal, both up 3%. For the rails, volume growth comes first, then pricing power and revenue growth follow. 
Now, this was CSX's first quarter of positive value growth since the third quarter of 2022, so I'm calling that a major term. Even better, management's full-year outlook was pretty darn encouraging. CSX doesn't give you much in the way of specific guidance, but they did say that, and I'm going to quote, they expect total volume and total revenue growth in the low to mid-single-digit range. That's incremental progress after volume and revenue both dropped 1% last year. The trend is coming for the merchandise and intermodal businesses. Fantastic. Plus, CSX says they're taking market share thanks to strong service levels. They tend to take it away, just so you know, from, from trucks, but also from trains. They can take it from another train. Madrin did guide for the $2.5 billion in capital spending this year, which is $300 million more than what the analysts were looking for. But the good news definitely outweighed the bad here. And that's why the stock rallied nearly 3% over the last two days after the quarter. Joe Hinrich, this new CEO, he's from Ford, by the way. He's got a great industrial background, and he's also making that train run on time. Call him bankable. Next was another one of my favorites, Union Pacific, which reported last Thursday morning and even had better numbers than CSX. UNP's revenue came in higher than expected, even if it was flat year over year. And they're operating much more efficiently with costs very much under control. By the way, that's the metric a lot of the analysts follow. It's called the operating ratio. It's translated into a 13-cent earnings speed off of a $2.58 basis, and I'm telling you, that's very good. Now, Union Pacific's volume trends were similar to what we saw from CSX, but better on absolute uh, basis. Total revenue correlates were up 3%, led by strong growth from fertilizer up 15%, which surprised me because fertilizer prices are not higher. Energy and specialty, uh, specialized markets up 9%. Industrial chemical and plastic up 7 Intermodal up 5%. These are amazing numbers for when the Fed has been tightening and tightening and tightening. They're very strong. One of the reasons why I think J-PAL's not off base tonight. For Union Pacific, this was the first quarter of positive volume since the fourth quarter of 2022. Hey, now you should know that Union Pacific's mostly qualitative guidance for 2024 was a little bit muted. Uh, maybe conserve guarded? Pick your adjective. Their outlook for key cargoes was overall mixed. They had positive things to say about fertilizers, petroleum, and petrochemicals, and automotive. But they were more negative on coal, construction, intermodal, uh, international intermodal. Plus, Union Pacific noted that there was a slower start to 2024, part because of these severe winter storms seen earlier this month. Overall, the company said, I'm going to quote here, the economic environment continues to look muted in 2024, particularly in the first half. Doesn't make me want to jump up and down and buy it. However... The CEO is the seasoned hand, Jim Venna. He is a real operator. And he sounded much more optimistic about the second half, so it's okay to buy the stock now. i got to wonder whether some of the areas where they're being conservative might actually turn out to be better than expected. In particular, it's true that many ships are being rerouted to ports on the West Coast thanks to these militants turned pirates in Yemen. I think the intermodal business might turn out very strong. Because of that, the Red Sea problem. Clearly, many buyers are on the same page because Union Pacific stock jumped 2% after a port. All right, now. Let's get address the third one, because in many ways, this is my favorite. Canadian Pacific Kansas City, which has that unwieldy name, thanks to the old Canadian Pacific merger with KC Southern. These numbers are distorted by the deal, but the revenues and earnings came in nicely higher than expected. Meanwhile, the company saw 4% vibe growth, best in the group. Looking forward, Canadian Pacific guide for double-digit earnings growth this year. Very positive. Management saying that, that, that uh, between their post-merger synergy opportunities and an improving economy, the company can continue to put up strong numbers, I believe. That was enough to push the stock up 1% today. Remember, in a terrible tape, I really like this stock in part because I have a place next to the tracks in Mexico. I've studied enough about this darn thing to know that they are crushing it. All right, how about a disappointment? Ah, Jesus, one hurt. Last Thursday night, Norfolk Southern reported a stinker of a quarter. It really was. Got hit with three dag rates the next day. Stock's been a serious liar for the past year, uh, ever since one of its trains derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. Nearly a year ago, Norfolk Southern just hasn't been the best operator. I mean, I, I, it just hasn't been. 
Stocks led the group since the market bottom in October, but only because it had much more room to play catch-up. And when they reported this time, Norfolk Southern had revenues that were down 5% year over year. A bit below expectations, and even when you strip out the costs related to the East Palestine crash, their earnings were down 17%. Now, worse than expected. As Stiefel's Benjamin Nolan put it when he downgraded the stock next day, Norfolk Southern has long been an underperforming self-help story that simply can't figure out how to help themselves. And this quarter, that trend turns uh, look to be continuing, end quote. And then, boy, does that ever sum it up. Here's the best thing I can say about Norfolk Southern. Stock only went down 1.5% on Friday, which is much better than it arguably deserved. I've been thinking, when a stock barely gets dinged on bad news, it's possible the negatives are all breaked in, or, and that's a suboptimal situation, but this might be a very good stock for an activist to come in. I know if I were in that activist business, I would take a hard look at this stock, and I certainly wouldn't sell the stock to them if they're accumulating a position. Bottom line, with the freight recession ending and the disruption in ocean shipping, we've got a situation that's clearly better for the railroads than others. You've got to focus on this group. If you feel okay about the economy, and I do like these for my channel trust, then you've got my blessing to stick with Union Pacific, Canadian Pacific, or CSX, in that order, by the way, and forget about Norfolk Southern for the moment, unless you want to speculate on an oncoming train of activists on their way. Let's go to Nick in Maryland. Nick. Booyah, Mr. Jimmy Chill. I like that. I like this guy. I like that, Nick. I like what Nick has to say. Love the macro views on the markets. It's great. Thank you. It's great. Thank you. Um, so I got a stock. It's made incredible, incredible runs in the short term, up 100% in the past two months, undervalued by analysts. Incredible dividend yield. I think the shipping container industry is showing some more stability as of late. Do I buy or hold ticker ZIM? You know, I've been thinking it is Zim's time. It is Eli Glickman's time. I think you can speculate on this one. The stock is down very big. They're not making a lot of money. Uh, they don't have it. Uh, but this is, the, I, well, I don't, you know what? It's their time. How about we go to Gregory in my home state of New Jersey? Gregory. Hey, Jim. Booyah. How you doing? I don't know. It depends on what part of the state you're from. Uh, Union City, New Jersey. Yes, the home of Smarties. Yes. <laughs> well, listen, I got a question. Um, I recently took a position in RTX, and I'm wondering, with the current geopolitical situation, is it a hold, or should I look to add? Um, is there any outsized non-systemic political risk that I should... No, no, and you can buy it, Greg. I spoke with Greg Hayes after that last quarter. He delivered a really good quarter. They put that problem behind him about the gear turbo fan. I wish the stock would come in. Let's not buy any more above 90, okay? But this one I wanted to uh, put in the channel trust. I wanted to put it in the bullpen, but it just moved up too fast. I say congratulations to you for buying it when you did. RTX is a winner. If you feel okay about the economy, you do have my blessing to stick with, and I got a bunch of them here because I like this group. Union Pacific, Canadian Pacific, or CSX, and do not forget, Norfolk Southern should have gone down more. Don't understand, other than it looks like activist possibility. Much more made money in. Thermo Fisher was a big winner in the COVID year, but now that the stock is starting to slow, what do you do with it? I'm digging the story, and I gotta tell you, this is a legendary company. Then a judge in Delaware struck down Elon Musk's Tesla pay package, and I gotta take on this ruling. I think it's gonna surprise you. Uh, not as much as he's surprising, but you never know. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Company of the Year is pretty bullish in the arms dealers of the life science industry. I'm talking about 
companies like Thermo Fisher Scientific, Danaher, which we own for the Chapel Trust. While this stock's been a huge long-term winner, Thermo Fisher's also struggled in the post-pandemic world as COVID-related revenue dried up, creating tough comparisons. But it's just comparisons. Late last year, the stock finally started getting some serious lift, which continued through January. Until this morning, with Thermo Fisher reported by an OK quarter, company beat expectations in every key line item, but its full-year forecast was in line with expectations, which is what happened right now in this business. In response, the stock needlessly tumbled $28, nearly 5%, largely because it started going up into the quarter. I'm not too worried about the forecast because these guys have historically been conservative. And by the way, that is something I always encourage your CEOs, CEOs to be. No sense overpromising on this show. So let's take a closer look with Mark Casper, the chairman, president, and CEO of Thermo Fisher Scientific. Learn more. Mr. Casper, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you today. Uh, I'm glad you're on, Mark. I, I have to tell you, when I go through what happened with this quarter, as I didn't say the last year, what I'm struck by is one thing, and it's a point that you made near the end of the call. You have to be incredibly bearish on the world to actually get to less than 4% industry growth for the long term in our segment. Are you right now at the cusp where we're really trending along the bottom and it only, I, I have to say, can go up from here? Yeah, Jim, I think that's a good characterization. When I think about our end markets that we serve, the pharmaceutical and biotech, academic markets, um, it really feels that, you know, 2023 was a reset year, um, working through the pandemic unwind, and 2024 is the beginning of the recovery year. And our assumption, we want to start out with a, you know, a moderate set of expectations for the market. So we're assuming that the first year, first half of the year is a bit more challenged. And It strengthens as the year unfolds, but we're very excited and expect to exit this year um, almost at the normal market growth that we've uh, enjoyed for many, many years. Oh, good. You know, I was listening to the CEO of NASDAQ, and and she's absolutely terrific. And she was saying this morning, more than 100 IPOs queued up, of which you and I both imagine that probably the plurality will be in the biotech world. This is great meaning for Thermo Fisher, doesn't it? It does. In fact, when you think about our business, about 60% of our business serves the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. Um, and you have the larger companies, the, the large pharma and biopharma companies, as well as the emerging. And the emerging has been pressured in the last year or so because of lack of capital. And the IPO market and the enthusiasm, actually, in the many interactions our management team has had with customers in January, there's a lot of funding that seems to be coming available. And that really is very encouraging because that translates into demand in our business in you know, roughly six to nine months' time. Well, that's what we want. Now, meanwhile, you're not sitting still. We both had to deal with the COVID hangover. Glad that it's behind us. But I thought it was very inventive. You're, you're transitioning to some of the, the sterile fill finished capacity from COVID vaccine support to GLP-1. I am convinced GLP-1 will be the largest class of drugs in history. So what are you doing in order to measure some of the crazy things that people are doing with it, all of which seem to pan out? Yeah, so when you think about um, the obesity medicines and the um, uptake in demand, it's been very substantial. And, you know, as a trusted partner to the pharmaceutical and biotech industry, we're supporting our customers in actually doing that final process step of putting the medicines in its sterile form for uh, injection in humans. And uh, because of the demand and the large capacity we expanded because of COVID, we've been able to sign contract to effectively transition that COVID um, vaccine-related capacity to support GLP-1 and other medicines as well. So we're very excited for that transition, and it bodes well for long-term growth at our company. No doubt about it. This morning when uh, 
we saw some numbers out of Novo Nordisk. They dropped it. They have a phase three trial for uh, osteoporosis for, for the knees. Uh, 365 million people are like me. We can't run. We can't do anything other than walk. And it's working for them. Are you surprised that this medicine seems to have so many applications, all of which, by the way, should be good news for Thermo Fisher? Yeah, obviously, there's been a lot of follow on clinical trial work going on, which is great for the business and um, looking at more and more indications on where the medicines can be helpful. And um, when there's really strong demand, not only do you get the direct role that we play, but it also creates a reinvestment cycle and R&D for those innovative companies. And it attracts VC funding um, for new companies that are really going after the dream of bringing out new medicines that will make a huge difference to society. Now, one thing that people may not know about you that I, I frankly I didn't know until you sat next to President Xi when you were out in San Francisco, but you are indeed the chair of the U.S.-China Business Council for the last couple of years. I'm going to posit something, and I may be a little ahead of my skis, but I, I was talking to Boeing this morning. I've been dealing with a bunch of businesses that are you know, commercial real estate. Not a thought, okay, because the two countries are not, uh, are really not doing that great together. But business people may be doing better together. Is there any hope that China can pick up in 2024 for Thermo Fisher? So when I think about the interactions that I've had with both the U.S. administration and the Chinese government, um, clearly the economic relationship is the area where is the best opportunity for progress, right? And... Uh, you know, the way I would think about what we've planned for is relatively modest GDP growth in China. So challenge conditions that likely improve late in the year. Um, but the government there can obviously pivot depending on, um, you know, what the societal challenges are. And we're very positive on the long term in China because what we do, we help ensure a, a safe food supply. We help them bring out medicines for their population. And We've been in the country for 40 years and have a big business there, and we're well positioned to serve that market and capitalize on the opportunities as the end market strengthens. Uh, and then finally, when I look at what's going on uh, in our country with, with large pharma, I wanted to ask you, we're seeing tremendous number of acquisitions by really for a flood of them, large pharma buying smaller. If those smaller ones were running out of money and large pharma has money, does that mean that they'll hire Thermo Fisher to start doing the work for the biotech companies that they bought that have been starved for equipment? Yeah, so when I think about the role we play there, the first thing we do is we help with the synergy and integration for our clients, right? When someone's acquiring, you know, a smaller company, we help the acquirer with the planning so that we can bring our expertise to bear. And then obviously, they're excited about something in the pipeline of what they're acquiring, and we play a large role in supporting it. And the reason that we've been able to do that and the trusted partner status we have is because of the fantastic colleagues we have around the world. We just have an amazing team. Every day, just focus on the success of our clients. Well, everybody says that. I've got a couple of friends who work for your company, and they just, let's, they're missionary for Thermo Fisher Scientific, which is certainly exactly the way you want them. Mark Casper, Chairman, President, CEO of Thermo Fisher. Mark, look, I, I see we're at the cusp of something really pretty terrific here. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jim. And Mike's back after the break. Coming up, pop open those umbrellas and tee up your toughest questions. Kramer takes on all comers in the lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, Dad, the lightning round. I'm going to start with 
I'm starting with Gabe in Michigan. Gabe. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Not bad, Gabe. How about you? Hey, pretty good. Appreciate all the advice as always. Oh, thank uh, you. All the coaching. And uh, if there's a time I needed coaching, it's right about now. Uh, I've been in this company since 2020. The fundamentals are strong. However, analysts are uh, revising the outlook and the uh, other way than I'd like, and that is with seven energy. The time to go. All right, it's too run. low. It's too low. I've been saying sell, 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 sell. At the $40 region, I am now switching, and I'm saying enough bye, bye, is bye. enough. $40 by Devin. All right, let's go to Sean in California. Sean. Hey, what's up, Kramer? Hey, how much? How are you, Sean? I'm doing pretty good. Hey, Supergroup just had a business update where they stated they expected to die double-digit growth for both revenue and EBITDA in 2024. Any new thoughts? Yeah. I, I, look, I think maybe because it was a SPAC, maybe because it's not well-presented, uh, I don't know what's going on because I do know that it is a very good company. I, look, I like DraftKings, though. All right, let's, I'm a DraftKings guy, and I think that that stock is headed much higher. Let's go to Will in Kentucky. Will. Hey, Jim, this is Will in Lexington, Kentucky. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, um, I know we're uh, drastically underbuilt in terms of residences in the United States, and this company makes parts that go into buildings of all sizes. What do you think about Simpson Manufacturing, SSD? Just kind of a classic good stock doing. See, now he, Will, Will from Lexington is coming to me with a stock. It's not sexy. It's not that interesting. It's a business and a good one. And he has got what I call horse sense. Let's go to Bob in New York. Bob. Hey, Jim. How are you doing today? Not bad. How are you, Bob? Not bad. Thanks for asking. Jim, this morning on Squawk, you mentioned the CEO who was trying to scare people. And I agree with you on that. This same CEO is becoming quite the whiner and he doesn't appear on mad money with you jim what's your take on barry stern looking starwood all right first let me just be clear i think barry's a terrific guy uh i just am a i have a predilection these days for not having people coming on and saying that the sky is falling i think there's other ways to do it i think you have to be a little more nuanced this is hard for me i was always a hatchet man i am now telling people who come on air, if you use certain terms that scare people, you may not be doing it. Dis- you're doing a disservice to yourself and to your viewers. There are problems with commercial real estate, no, that, no doubt about it. But they're not nearly as dire as Mr. Sternley says, or else his stock, his stock would be at zero. And that's what I have to say. Jason in New York, Jason. Jason, come on, don't be upset with that last thing that I said. Oh, my God, how about Sean? Who hit? Who? Yo, booyah, Jimmy Chow. Yo, What's man, on? how you doing? What's happening? Good, how are you? First time car, man. Listen, Never, first time. I've some of you in the past year. I oh, live thank not you. too far from where you're from. Um, wonder what you think about Woodward. Stock ticker I have always liked Woodward. I've liked Woodward from the when I first started the uh, Travel Trust. It's just a plain out uh, manufacturing company. We expect it to go down a little bit here because the market is ugly. But and that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Government's one, Elon Musk, zero. That's my takeaway from Delaware Chancery Court's decision handed down yesterday 
devoid must-pay package worth as much as $55.8 billion of every benchmark was hit, which amazingly is exactly what happened. First, let me say, I see nothing wrong with Musk making any amount of money. Even what Chancellor Kathleen, Kathleen McCormick describes as, and I quote, the largest potential compensation opportunity ever observed in public markets by a multiple, multiple orders of magnitude, 250 times larger than contemporaneous median peer compensation, but uh, 33 times larger than the plan's closest comparison, end quote. I see nothing wrong as long as the shareholders get to benefit from his success, which you sure did, at least very recently. Musk is what you call sui generis. There's no one like him. He's so good that we are lucky to ride his coattails. Musk pretty much told you what it would take for him to stay as CEO versus, say, going off to his space business full time or heading to this neurology technology business, which I think is incredible. Now, if I'd been a shareholder during Tesla's historic run, my biggest worry would have been what would happen if Musk woke up on one day and decided, that's it, it's time to do something else. If this contract kept him there and engaged, working the line, sleeping next to it, I'd be thrilled if he got every bit of every penny. We're talking about one of the most successful CEOs in history. If he's, he's worth it. In fact, I found his pay package almost refreshing. I say almost because while some of the goals seem like a stretch, the initial tranches we learned later were already pretty much in the bag. The board billed them as difficult milestones to hit, but they were already on track to hit them. And that is the crucial point here. Because Tesla's incorporated in Delaware. It's protected by the state's corporate laws, where the reliable system caters to publicly traded companies. There's a reason nearly every big business wants to be under the Delaware umbrella. But you got to play by the rules, Elon, because if you don't, they'll get you on a technicality. One of the chief rules is that you need to disclose all sorts of things about your company's inner workings that you might not otherwise want to. For example, your pay package has to be fairly arrived at, not a crony contract. There's got to be a give or the get. Otherwise, if Bus was going to work hard anyway and he doesn't plan to leave anyway, then what was the point of giving him so much money, so much equity? No board would ever agree to such a package unless it's a board that's controlled by Musk. The 200-page ruling, which was hysterical, by the way, was mainly about how Musk had control over the board. Most were friends who've made a ton of money and, and from a guy and, of course, his brother, whom I would describe as a not adversarial. I, his uh, divorce lawyer was the chief lawyer there. Not, hey, they, can, they can do a lot of things. So yeah, I, I know that. But it's pretty much everyone's admission was meant to reward, for him, reward him for making everyone so much money. That was it. That was the deal. And for that promise, you know, he keep doing so. And that's the issue. Tesla's a publicly traded company, for heaven's sake, and a public company is owned by the shareholders, not by Musk. There's supposed to be a process. They get to vote on these matters, but the inner workings of this process needs to be disclosed. That process is what protects the shareholders from fraud. In this particular case, I think it's a formality, but there are real reasons for the rules. I bet Musk could, could have gotten the same amount of money if he played by the rules, but Musk hates process. He finds it contemptible, Lilliputian. I believe that in his mind, the whole process is just a charade, a caveat emptor thing. Of course, if that were true, he'd be sitting on a $56 billion gold mine rather than offering a veiled threat to leave because he doesn't own enough equity to prevent activists from pushing him around. In the end, Musk was foolish enough to incorporate his company in a state with rules, and now he has to pay. Maybe if Tesla just issued a pay package based on the fact that everybody's his pal, he'd made a lot of money for us and basically owns us and wrote the whole darn agreement himself, that might have passed muster because all the dirty linen could be read, observed, and voted on positively. And that's my issue with this ruling. It's a total triumph of form over substance. Musk gave you substance but no form. And by the way, that's good enough for me, but not for Delaware. He did indeed pick the wrong state. He should go incorporate in a state where if he makes a ton of money, 
you make a ton of money too, even if this contract is a total sham. I think they're doing day of the week. After all, who are the greedy ones here? I'd argue it's the plaintiffs, not Musk, and not the board. My judgment about the plaintiffs? What a bunch of crybabies. I like to say there's always a more working somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here at Mid Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.